Hello, and welcome back to another reading of Jane Eyre, the Womance Public Access Read-Along. My name is Morgan. I am your odd chapter reader. My name is Isabeau, and I am your even chapter reader. And this week, it is my week. It is chapter 23. Isabel, what happened in chapter 22? In chapter 22, Jane wraps up her business at Gateshead. Her aunt is dead and buried. She gets Georgiana packed off to London. She gets the other sister packed off to a convent in France and says some really mean stuff straight to her face, but that's cool. She has a 24-hour carriage ride back to Thornfield, and then just as that beautiful sun is setting, she comes up the primrose path. And who should be there to meet her but Mr. Thornfield himself, Mr. Fairfax Edward Rochester? And they have this very adorable little like tete-a-tete where he calls her a fairy and an angel and all things very weird. He even calls her Janet, which I kind of love as a little endearment of Jane for whatever reason. And then she closes this very brief chapter of them meeting in the sunlight by saying that she had never loved him so well and that she does this in the full knowledge that he is going to marry Miss Blanche Ingram. All right, chapter 23. A splendid midsummer shone over England, skies so pure, suns so radiant, as were then seen in long succession, seldom favor, even singly, our wave-girt land. It was as if a band of Italian days had come from the south, like a flock of glorious passenger birds, and lighted to rest them on the cliffs of Albion. The hay was all got in, and the fields round Thornfield were green and shorn, the roads white and baked. The trees were in their dark prime, hedged and wood, full-leaved and deeply tinted, contrasted well with the sunny hue of the cleared meadows between. On Midsummer Eve, Adele, Weary with gathering wild strawberries and hay lane half the day, had gone to bed with the sun. I watched her drop asleep, and when I left her, I sought the garden. It was now the sweetest hour of the twenty-four. Day its fervored fires had wasted, and dew cool on planting plain and scorched summit, where the sun had gone down in simple state, pure of the pomp of clouds spread a solemn purple, burning with the light of red jewel and furnace flame at one point, on one hill's peak, and existing high and wide, soft and still softer, over half heaven. The east had its own charm of fine deep blue, and its own modest gem, a rising and solitary star. Soon it would boast the moon, but she was yet beneath the horizon, the golden hour. You know, I don't have like a strong desire to visit England, like once was sufficient, but then I read this and I'm like, oh man, I really want to go wherever this is and like be there in this long summer twilight. I walked a while on the pavement, but a subtile, (laughs) well-known scent, that of a cigar, stole from some window. I saw the library casement open a hand breadth. I knew I might be watched thence, so I went apart into the orchard. No nook in the grounds more sheltered and more Eden-like. It was full of trees, it bloomed with flowers, a very high wall shut it out from the court on one side. On the other, a beech avenue screened it from the lawn. At the bottom was sunk a fence, its sole separation from lonely fields, a winding walk bordered with laurels and terminating in a giant horse chestnut, circled at the base by a seat, led down to the fence. 
Here one could wander unseen, while such honeydew fell, such silence reigned, such gloaming gathered. I felt as if I could haunt such shade forever. But in the threading forever and fruit parterres at the upper part of the enclosure, enticed there by the light and now rising moon casts on this more open quarter, my step is stayed, not by sound nor by sight, but once more by a warning fragrance. I like that even in the sunniness, she finds a shady gloam. <laughs> and she's like, this is great. This is great. I wanna be in the shades and the shadows. Sweet briar and southern wood, jasmine, pink, and rose have long been yielding their evening sacrifice of incense. This new scent is neither of shrub nor flower. It is, I know it well, it is Mr. Rochester's cigar. I look round and I listen. I see trees laden with ripening fruit. (laughs) I hear a nightingale warbling in a wood half a mile off. No moving form is visible, no coming step audible, but that perfume increases. I must flee. I make for the wicket leading to the shrubbery and I see Mr. Rochester entering. I step aside into the ivy recess. He will not stay long. He will soon return whence he came. And if I sit here, he will never see me. But no, eventide is as pleasant to him as to me, and this antique garden as attractive. And he strolls on now lifting from the gooseberry tree branches to look at the fruit, large as plums with which they are laden. Now taking a ripe cherry from the wall, now stooping toward a knot of flowers, either to inhale their fragrance or to admire the dew beads on their petals. A great moth goes humming by me, the lights on a plant at Mr. Rochester's feet. He sees it and bends to examine it. So sexual. So sexy. Now he has his back toward me, thought I, and he is occupied too. Perhaps if I walk softly, I can slip away unnoticed. But I was too entranced by his donk. (laughs) (laughs) I hope it makes it into the final cut. I trod on an edging of turf, and the crackle of the pebbly gravel might not betray me. He was standing among the beds at a yard or two distant from where I had to pass. The moth apparently engaged him. I shall get by very well, I meditated. As I crossed his shadow, thrown long over the garden by the moon, not yet risen high, he said quietly, without turning. Jane, come and look at this fellow. I had made no noise. He had not eyes behind. Could his shadow feel? I started at first, and then I approached him. Look at his wings, said he. He reminds me rather of a West Indian insect. One does not often see so large and gay a night rover in England. There, he has flown. The moth roamed away. I was sheepishly retreating also, but Mr. Rochester followed me. And when we reached the wicket, he said, turn back. On so lovely a night, it is a shame to sit in the house. Surely no one can wish to go to bed while sunset is thus at meeting with moonrise. It is one of my faults that though my tongue is sometimes prompt enough at answer, there are times when it sadly fails me in framing an excuse, and always the lapse occurs at some crisis, when a facile word or plausible pretext is specially wanted to get me out of painful embarrassment. I did not like to walk at this hour alone with Mr. Rochester in the shadowy orchard, but I could not find a reason to allege for leaving him. I followed with lagging steps and thoughts busily bent on discovering a means of extrication, but he himself looked so composed and so grave also. I became ashamed of feeling any confusion. The evil, if evil existent or perspective there was, seemed to lie with me only. His mind was unconscious and quiet. 
This is where I start to understand why historicals are so good, because the book is needing to make this maneuver, right? The book needs them alone in a dark orchard, but it also needs to maintain Jane's moral integrity. And so it adds this like sheen of both destiny, right? But also like a little bit lasciviousness. But like the lasciviousness is in the plant and in Jane, not in Rochester. So she's safe to go with him. Right. Which makes like everyday things like walking in a garden a little bit more interesting. Mm-hmm. Just by virtue of their context. Voluptuous. Historical context. Jane, he recommenced as we entered the laurel walk and slowly strayed down in the direction of the sunk fence and the horse chestnut. Thornfield is a pleasant place in summer, is it not? Yes, sir. You must have become, in some degree, attached to the house. You, who have an eye for natural beauties and a good deal of the organ of adhesiveness. What's the organ of adhesiveness? One of the propensities located by calm towards the back of the head next to concentrativeness and love of children. Oh, man, more phrenology. Yeah, they love it. She doesn't love children. I mean... She said it. It's next to the organ (laughs) of the love of children. I'm attached to it, indeed, and though I don't comprehend how it is, I perceive you have acquired a degree of regard for that foolish little child Adele, too, and even for simple Dame Fairfax. God, he's such a fucking asshole. Yes, sir. In different ways, I have an affection for both, and would be sorry to part with them. Yes, pity, he said, and sighed and paused. It is always the way of events in this life, he continued presently. No sooner have you got settled into a pleasant, restful place than a voice calls out to you to rise and move on, for the hour of repose is expired. Must I move on, sir? I asked. Must I leave Thornfield? I believe you must, Jane. I'm sorry, Janet, but I believe, indeed you must. This was a blow, but I did not let it prostrate me. Go. Well, sir, I shall be ready when the order to march comes. It has come now. I must give it tonight. Then you are going to be married, sir. Exactly. Precisely. With your usual acuteness, you have hit the nail straight on the head. Soon, sir. Very soon, my... That is, Miss Eyre. And you'll remember, Jane. The first time I, or rumor, capitalized, plainly intimated to you that it was my intention to put my old bachelor's neck into the sacred noose to enter into the holy estate of matrimony, to take Miss Ingram to my bosom, in short. She's an extensive armful, but that's not the point. One can't have too much of such a very excellent thing as my beautiful Blanche. Well, as I was saying, listen to me, Jane. You're not turning your head to look after more moths, are you? That was only a lady clock. A ladybug. That was only a lady clock, child. Flying away home. I wish to remind you that it was you who first said to me, with that discretion I respect in you, with that foresight, prudence, and humility which befit your responsible and dependent position, that in case I married Miss Ingram, both you and little Adele had better trot forthwith. I pass over the sort of slur conveyed in this suggestion on the character of my beloved. Indeed, when you are far away, Janet, I'll try to forget it. I shall notice only its wisdom, which is such that I have made it my law of action. Adele must go to school, and you, Miss Eyre, must get a new situation. Yes, sir. I will advertise immediately. And meantime, I suppose... I was going to say, I suppose I may stay here till I find another shelter to betake myself to, but I stopped, feeling it would not do to risk a long sentence, for my voice was not quite under command. In about a month, I hope to be a bridegroom, continued Mr. Rochester, and in the interim, I shall myself look out for employment as an asylum for you. Thank you, sir. 
I'm sorry to give. Oh, no need to apologize. I consider that when a dependent does her duty as well as you have done yours, she has a sort of claim upon her employer for any little assistance he can conveniently render her. Indeed, I have already, through my future mother-in-law, heard of a place that I think will suit. It is to undertake the education of the five daughters of Mrs. Dionysus O'Gall of Bitternut Lodge, Connacht, Ireland. You'll like Ireland, I think. They're such a warm-hearted people there, they say. It is a long way off, sir. No matter. A girl of your sense will not object to the voyage or the distance. Not the voyage, but the distance. And then the sea is a barrier. From what, Jane? From England and, and from Thornfield and, well, from you, sir. I said this almost involuntarily, and with as little sanction of free will, my tears gushed out. I did not cry so as to be heard, however. I avoided sobbing. Let's talk about the gross sound that must be. <laughs> when you avoid sobbing. The, 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 yeah, the hiccup. So that's what she's doing right now. <laughs> I avoided sobbing. It's fiction, so she's just like elegantly streaming tears down her face. <laughs> oh, my throat hurts thinking about trying not to sob. Just sob, guys. It is insane the physical things that happen when you are trying not to cry harder. Because like the physical manifestations, like the way your eyes burn, the way you get that sound in your throat to hold it back, the way like your chest shudders as you're trying to like hold it in. It's like a full body experience. It's very immersive, the crying and not crying. Yeah. And it feels so much better if you just don't do that. And think about it, like it's so special to feel something so deeply that you need to sob. It's very vulnerable and Mr. Rochester just revealed himself to be quite an asshole. Bask in your sobs. Just let it out. That would make him uncomfortable and probably make him leave you alone. Just cry. Just cry. I mean, yeah, just cry. The thought of Mrs. O'Gall and Bitternut Lodge struck cold to my heart, and colder the thought of all the brine and foam, destined, as it seemed, to rush between me and the master, at whose side I now walked, and coldest at the remembrance of the wider ocean, wealth, caste, custom, intervened between me and what I naturally and inevitably loved. It is a long way, I again said. It is, to be sure, and when you get to Bitternut Lodge, Connacht, Ireland. I shall never see you again, Jane. That's morally certain. I never go over to Ireland, not having myself much of a fancy for the country. We have been good friends, have we not, Jane? Yes, sir. And when friends are on the eve of separation, they like to spend the little time that remains to them close to each other. Come, we'll talk over the voyage and the parting quietly, half an hour or so, while the stars enter into their shining life up in heaven yonder. Here is the chestnut tree. Here is the bench at its roots. Come, we will sit there in peace tonight, though we should never more be destined to sit there together. He seated me and himself. He's just such a dramatic boob. Like, he's just torturing her. Morally certain I'm not going to Ireland. And it's not because it's being held in colonial thrall, mind you. It's because I don't have a warmth for the country. Yeah, he put like the hard sell on it and then immediately was like, sucks, so like I won't be there. <laughs> You'll be alone there and bitter nut. I also like the idea of asking someone like, can we talk quietly together? Because so often I want to talk quietly with someone and I've just never felt like I could ask. But now I do feel like I could ask. Absolutely. Let out your sobs and ask people to talk quietly with you so you get that nice closeness, that hot breath, those water droplets we've missed so much. As you sit in the oncoming gloaming, <laughs> shoulder to shoulder, breathing in each other's hot breath. 
It is a long way to Ireland, Janet, and I am sorry to send my little friend on such weary travels. But if I can do better, how is it to be helped? Are you anything akin to me? Do you think, Jane? I could risk no sort of answer by this time. My heart was full. Because, he said, I sometimes have a queer feeling with regard to you, especially when you are near me as now. It is as if I had a string somewhere under my left ribs, tightly and inextricably knotted to a similar string situated in the corresponding quarter of your little frame. And if that boisterous channel and 200 miles or so of land came broad between us, I am afraid that cord of communion will be snapped. And then I've a nervous notion I should take to bleeding inwardly. As for you, you'd forget me. That I never should, sir. You know, impossible to proceed. Jane, do you hear that nightingale singing in the wood? Listen. God, I love it. In listening, I sobbed convulsively. Yes, let it out, sis. Yes for I could repress what I endured no longer. I was obliged to yield, and when I was shaken from head to foot with acute distress, when I did speak it was only to express an impetuous wish that I had never been born, or never come to Thornfield. Because you are sorry to leave it, the vehemence of emotion, stirred by grief and love within me, was calming mastery, and struggling for full sway, asserting a right to predominate, to overcome, to live, rise, and reign at last, Yes, and to speak. I grieve to leave Thornfield. I love Thornfield. I love it. Because I have lived in it a full and delightful life. Momentarily, at least, I have not been trampled on. I have not been petrified. I have not been buried with inferior minds and excluded from every glimpse of communion with what is bright and energetic and high. I have talked face to face with what I reverence, with what I delight in, with an original, vigorous, and expanded mind. I have known you, Mr. Rochester, and it strikes me with terror and anguish to feel I absolutely must be torn from you forever. I see the necessity of departure, and it is like looking on the necessity of death. Where do you see the necessity? He asked suddenly. Where? You, sir, have placed it before me. In what shape? In the shape of Miss Ingram, a noble and beautiful woman, your bride. My bride? What bride? I have no bride. But you will have. Yes, I will. I will. He set his teeth. Then I must go. You have said it yourself. No, you must stay. I swear it and the oath shall be kept. I tell you I must go, I retorted, roused to something like passion. Do you think I can stay and become nothing to you? Do you think I am an automaton, a machine without feelings, and can bear to have my morsel of bread snatched from my lips and my drop of living water dashed from my cup? Do you think because I am poor, obscure, plain, and little, I am soulless and heartless, you think wrong? I have as much soul as you, and full as much heart, and if God had gifted me with some beauty and much wealth, I should have made it as hard for you to leave me as it is now for me to leave you. I am not talking to you now through the medium of custom conventionalities, not even of mortal flesh. It is my spirit that addresses your spirit, just as if both had passed through the grave and we stood at God's feet, equal, as we are, as we are, repeated Mr. Rochester. So, he added, enclosing me in his arms, gathering me to his breast, pressing his lips on my lips. So, Jane, yes, so, sir, I rejoined, and yet not so, for you are a married man, or as good as a married man, and wed to one inferior to you, to one with whom you have no sympathy, whom I do not believe you truly love. For I have seen and heard you sneer at her. I would scorn such a union. Therefore, I am better than you. Let me go. 
Where, Jane? To Ireland. Yes, to Ireland. I have spoken my mind and can go anywhere now. Jane, be still. Don't struggle so, like a wild, frantic bird that is rending its own plumage into its desperation. I am no bird, and no net ensnares me. I am a free human being, with an independent will which I now exert to leave you. Another effort set me at liberty. I stood erect before him. And your will shall decide your destiny, he said. I offer you my hand, my heart, and a share of all my possessions. You play a farce, which I merely laugh at. I ask you to pass through life at my side, to be my second self and best earthly companion. For that fate you have already made your choice and must abide by it. Jane, be still a few moments. You are overexcited. I will be still too. If she's overexcited, it's because you've made her so, you ginormous jerk. Yeah. And also, like, if you stop struggling, I'll stop struggling. Right? Like, I'll be still too. Whatever, dick. I can't believe you would say that. I That proposal just like, oh, I love that. I ask you to pass through life at my side to be my second self and best earthly companion. I mean, come on. I mean, everything about this scene, like her whole little speech is just so uncompromising and beautiful in it when she said, you know, this isn't mere customer conventionality. This is my spirit that addresses your spirit, just as if both of us had passed through the grave and we stood at God's feet equal as we are, as we are. Just, ugh. God. When I was reading that, I was like, God, I sound like, you know, I was like, I'm reading it like Mia Wachkiaska. I've watched that movie too many times. And I was like, well, no, I also sound like every other person I've heard read this speech. And I was thinking like that writing, it just like immediately like taps into a singular shared feeling, right? Of not just great intensity, but clarity. And I think that's why it only makes sense to kind of be read in like one way. So I was worried I was like, you know, just being a hack. And then I was like, I don't think I am. I think I think that's just the way it is, you know. <laughs> There's only one way to read it. Yeah, which, how incredible. Like, how old is this book again? 1840s It was when it was published. It's like a hundred, it just had it, well, just. Time means nothing. But just to like, still, it's like, ugh. You know. Exactly. And when she exerts herself as a free spirit and like equal as a human, like you can see why this text was so important to the suffragettes and the suffragettes movement of the 1870s all the way up until the 1910s. Like they quoted that line in their pamphlets. Like this book was really important. Yeah. And the clarity that you speak of, this like congealing of a feeling that you so many people knew was true and then somebody put it into words. Yeah. Like she's not hiding behind any kind of like metaphor or she's not triangulating anywhere. It's like a a clear light, you know? And you're able to describe it exactly. And like, I think we we all have that clarity when we're in that feeling, but to have the the bravery to say it and and to write it, frankly. And, you know, talking about the sea of caste and and saying like, but I can make a choice. You know, I'm not super into like individualism whenever it comes to like social ills, but like, when you make that choice for yourself and it allows you to connect with people in a different way. I also love that you're bringing up choice here because I think that's exactly right. Like earlier you said like this had a whiff of destiny and like predestination, but like she knows that it would be wrong to be in love with Rochester and stay if he's married someone else. So she will go. Mm -hmm. Exactly. She will eat her heart and go. 
because love here is a choice that you don't you don't get to choose who you fall in love with but you get to choose your actions based on that truth and i think like that is sometimes missing in our contemporary historicals there's like too much a whiff of destiny and not enough like cool contemplation about the consequences of that yeah and after like almost 300 pages of rochester being pretty frank and it going right over her head. I know that she's kind of like pushed and prodded into this declaration by him, but I do love that she is able to give that full self, right? To speak with that direction and that it's her who is choosing to be direct, right? As beautiful as that piece about the string snapping is, it's still metaphor. And I love that Jane says like, I'm going to cross all of these different oceans that are already exist between us before another literal ocean exists between us and tell you exactly. And is like finding her expression of love through a feeling of rage. Yes. And embracing that part of herself again. Those passions are twined. Yeah, she's once again a little girl telling off her aunt, you know, but to a, a different end. Hopefully. A waft of wind came sweeping down the laurel walk and trembled through the boughs of the chestnut. It wandered away, away, to an indefinite distance. It died. The nightingale's song was then the only voice of the hour. And listening to it, I again wept. Mr. Rochester sat quiet, looking at me gently and seriously. Some time passed before he spoke. He at last said, Come to my side, Jane, and let us explain and understand one another. I will never again come to your side. I am torn away now and cannot return. But Jane, I summon you as my wife. It is you only I intend to marry. I was silent. I thought he mocked me. Come, Jane. Come hither. Your bride stands between us. He rose and with a stride reached me. Important. My bride is here, he said, drawing me to him. Because my equal is here and my likeness, Jane. Will you marry me? I still did not answer, and still I writhed myself from his grasp, for I was still incredulous. Do you doubt me, Jane? Entirely. You have no faith in me. Not a whit. Am I a liar in your eyes? He asked passionately. Little skeptic, you shall be convinced. What love have I for Miss Ingram? None, and that you know. What love has she for me? None. As I have taken pains to prove, I caused a rumor to reach her that my fortune was not a third of what it was supposed, and after that I presented myself to see the result. It was coldness both from her and her mother. I would not, I could not, marry Miss Ingram. You, you strange, you almost unearthly thing, I love as my own self, flesh. I love as my own flesh. You, poor and obscure and small and plain as you are, I entreat to accept me as a husband. What me? I ejaculated, beginning in his earnestness, and especially in his incivility, to credit his sincerity. Me, who have not a friend in the world but you, if you are my friend, not a shilling, but what you have given me? You, Jane, I must have you for my own, entirely my own. Will you be mine? Say yes quickly. Mr. Rochester, let me look at your face. Turn to the moonlight. Why? Because I want to read your countenance. Turn. There. You will find it scarcely more legible than a crumpled, scratched page. Read on. Only make haste, for I suffer. His face was very much agitated, and very much flushed. And there were strong workings in the features, and strange gleams in the eye. 
Oh, Jane, you torture me, he exclaimed with that searching and yet faithful and generous look. You torture me. How can I do that? If you are true and your offer real, my own feelings to you must be gratitude and devotion. They cannot torture. Gratitude, he ejaculated and added wildly. Jane, accept me quickly. Say Edward. Give me my name. Edward. I will marry you. Are you in earnest? Do you truly love me? Do you sincerely wish me to be your wife? I do. And if an oath is necessary to satisfy you, I swear it. And sir, I will marry you. Edward, my little wife. Dear Edward, come to me. Come to me entirely now, said he, and added in his deepest tone, speaking in my ear as his cheek was laid on mine. Make my happiness. I will make yours. God pardon me, he subjoined ere long, and man meddle not with me, I have her and will hold her. There is no one to meddle, sir. I have no kindred to interfere. No, that is the best of it, he said. And if I had loved him less, I should have thought his accent and look of exultation savage. But sitting by him, roused from the nightmare of parting, called to the paradise of union, I thought only of the bliss given me to drink in so abundant a flow. Again and again he said, Are you happy, Jane? And again and again I answered, Yes. After which he murmured, It will atone. It will atone. Have I not found her friendless and cold and comfortless? Will I not guard and cherish and solace her? There is not love in my heart and constancy in my resolves. It will expiate at God's tribunal. I know my maker sanctions what I do. For the world's judgment, I wash my hands thereof. For man's opinion, I defy it. But what had befallen the night? The moon was not yet set, and we were all in shadow. I could scarcely see my master's face, near as I was. And what ailed the chestnut tree? It writhed and groaned while wind roared in the laurel walk and came sweeping over us. We must go in, said Mr. Rochester. The weather changes. I could have sat with thee all till morning, Jane. And so thought I, could I with you? I should have said so, perhaps. But a livid, vivid spark leaped out of a cloud at which I was looking, and there was a crack, a crash, and a close rattling peal. I thought only of hiding my dazzled eyes against Mr. Rochester's shoulder. The rain rushed down. He hurried me up the walk, through the grounds, and into the house. But we were quite wet before we could pass the threshold. He was taking off my shawl in the hall and shaking water out of my loosened hair. And when Mrs. Fairfax emerged from her room, I did not observe her at first, nor did Mr. Rochester. The lamp was lighted. The clock was on the stroke of twelve. Holy shit. Hasten to take off your wet things, said he, and before you go, good night. Good night, my darling. He kissed me repeatedly. When I looked up on leaving his arms, there stood the widow, pale, grave, and amazed. I only smiled at her and ran up the stairs. Explanation will do for another time, thought I. Still, when I reached my chamber, I felt a pang at the idea she should even temporarily misconstrue what she had seen. But joy effaced every other feeling, and loud as the wind blew, near and deep as the thunder crashed, fierce and frequent as the lightning gleamed, cataract light-like as the rain fell during the storm of two hours' duration, I experienced no fear and little awe. Mr. Rochester came thrice to my door in the course of it to ask if I was safe and tranquil. And that was comfort. That was strength for anything. Before I left my bed in the morning, little Adele came running in to tell me that great horse chestnut at the bottom of the orchard had been struck by lightning in the night, and half of it split away. Wah, wah, wah!
When I was a youngster and I would say anything remotely blasphemous, blasphemous, exactly. My mom would tell me that God would strike me down with lightning. And uh, I do believe Rochester narrowly escaped uh, for his blasphemy. And, uh, you know, Jane doesn't even share what her assumptions are based on what he said. Like, she doesn't say, oh, it's because of our class difference. Nope. She provides no theory, no query to why he would feel like his upcoming nuptials, like, what are they redeeming him for? And why would he need to be forgiven for it by God? Strangely uncurious, our dear Jane has become after their mutual declaration. She's like, he's saying weird stuff. That's cool. He also dressed as a fortune teller. So like, he's an eccentric. (laughs) Do you think that's how he got the rumor to Blanche Ingram? And that's why she was so sad when she left? That's probably what happened. Yeah. That is so silly. He is a very silly man. Like, genuinely silly. Well, today, not to give too much insight into our recording schedule, but today is the start of Aries season. As an Aries, I feel invigorated. But I also think it's so, you know, if you're interested, if astrology is of any kind of interest to you, Mr. Rochester always reads like an Aries to me, even in his, like, physical form. But this expression of love, this, like, violent, jealous, desperate... Unlike Jane, I think he feels very entitled to do things with his whole chest and is gratified when she does it as well. And in fact, his whole project is to hear her speak with her full voice, right? But speak specifically that she feels the same way about him that he does about her. And of course, our profession of love comes in the liminal space of twilight when such opportunities are made available to us, such transgressions. Right. And it's in the garden, which has been compared to Eden. And all that lush fruit. That voluptuous fruit. And like this declaration is so good. And his declaration is also so good. And like everything about it is just like verdant and fresh and we have the liminal space of the gloaming also they come in just as the storm breaks and it's midnight which is also like the thing about english summers is that they go on forever you mean the days go on forever yeah the days go on forever in the summer because like northern england's at the same parallel as anchorage alaska and it's like so warm there because of the atlantic trans conveyor belt and the currents which is why these summers are so verdant and lush and so they come in and the sun is just set and it's midnight yeah so they start off in like almost this like fairy tale Eden space of purity and then by the end God is trying to kill Rochester <laughs> I mean it's paradise lost absolutely he crossed the line but like also like I think that sense of destiny is there like they can't just stay there forever cooing at each other like the sun has to set or rise like they can't stay in this liminal space forever and uh, you know the consequences shall shall arrive that's interesting just as you said it like the sun has to rise when you were reading this it really made me think of like romeo and juliet's balcony scene and like that's true there too right the sun has to rise romeo has to leave or the capulets will kill him if they catch him like there are consequences you can't stay in this like fog of love forever much as you wish you could oh that's interesting All right. Well, I can't wait to read the next chapter. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up by saying loosen your Janes. But never your heirs.